This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this episode, I speak to one of the up-and-coming stars in the field of nutrition, Mr. Alex Leaf. He will speak with us today about fat loss, and not fat loss from a fad or diet perspective, but fat loss from a lifestyle perspective. We go into the inner workings of what is involved with creating a fat loss lifestyle. And he has done an amazing job with his research and programming to learn how to apply some of the fundamentals and foundational principles of lifestyle into actionable steps that we all can learn from. So without further delay, I welcome on my special guest, Mr. Alex Leaf. Alex, welcome to the One Thing Podcast. I'm really delighted to speak with you today. Hey, Adam, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, we wanted to uh, sort of set the stage for today. We were going to talk a lot about fat loss. Um, before we get into that, I'd love to hear how you ended up at Bastyr. Um, it sounds like you had a pretty significant science background at Washington State, and um you know, I went to Bastyr. I was just kind of fascinated to uh, hear how people ended up there because I'm sure you had a lot of choices. Yeah. Um, well, my path was kind of straightforward. I, I was an avid athlete throughout all of my life. I was in wrestling from the time I was in elementary school up through high school. And then I went to college to get a business degree. And I realized while I was finishing my last year of business that I didn't want to, to uh, have a career in accounting, which was the degree I was going for. So I ended up finishing my degree in accounting and uh, using that last year to get some of those science prerequisite courses because I knew that I wanted to do something in nutrition. I was very involved with the wellness programs at uh, the University, Washington State University, and it had just been a, a, an interest of mine for quite a while. So I decided this is what I wanted to do. And so once I graduated with my accounting degree, I had some prerequisites, but not all. I found Bastyr by searching around the greater Seattle area, which is where I lived. And they were the only ones that said I could apply without having a related science undergraduate degree. And because my degree was in business, that was like the, the ceiling deal. Um, I didn't really have an opportunity to shop around simply because I was coming from a completely different field. Uh, but thankfully, I finished their prerequisites at a community college and then joined into their master's program. And uh, that's pretty much how, how I got from there to having my master's in human nutrition and dietetics. Um. I was originally planning on being a registered dietitian, but I eventually abandoned that hope uh, after not being selected for two internship rounds. 
um, and decided to focus on research because the reason I wasn't selected for the internships when talking to the instructors was that I didn't have experience working in a hospital. And not working in the hospital in a nutrition-related way, literally being like a lackey that just brought food to patients. Um, and it was not worth my time to, at that time, I was, I was literally being paid to create dietetic continuing education material. And so to think I had to go and do a like minimum wage job of just serving food that wasn't relevant to nutrition all just so I could become an RD wasn't worth it to me. So I just went and focused all my efforts on nutrition research. Yeah. So that, um, that brings me to my next question. So you, you were working with examine and do you, and, um, is that the research you were doing? Yeah. So at the time I was, I had been, uh, I spearheaded the examine research digest when it first launched in 2014. I was one of the first writers that they brought on for that project. And I was one of the writers throughout the entire thing. Uh, then in 2016, when I graduated from Bastyr, they hired me full time to be an editor for the Research Digest and also uh, work full time creating uh, paid products and blog posts for them. Um, and so part of that was where the continuing education material came from. Great. Yeah. And I see you've linked up with some pretty amazing researchers, you know, um, Dr. Antonio um, and, uh, you know, his team. How did that come about? I, well, in that case, Dr. Antonio was interested in having a review article on the effects of overfeeding done uh, because there's never been a review article looking at how overfeeding affects body composition and how macronutrients play a role in that. And, uh, he, I, uh, had just been friends with him and talking with him, uh, frequently through the international society of sports nutrition Facebook group. And so he just reached out and asked if I would be interested in writing it. And so, uh, him and I teamed up to write this comprehensive review article that we got published now, I think three years ago, um, and that was my first, uh, peer reviewed kind of study that I've ever published. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great article and definitely, I imagine it, um, has influenced, you know, the direction you're in right now. Yeah. Well, I always, you know, one of the things that I've considered for down the road is maybe going back and getting a PhD in a nutrition related field. Um, and, I have said numerous times that if I were to do that, I think I would want to do my dissertation on overfeeding because it's really, uh, you know, there's so much focus on, on fat loss really in the world, which makes sense with 74% of the American population being either overweight or obese and having, you know, most health consequences that afflict us today being related to obesity. It's very understandable why people are focused on wanting to lose weight. But there is a small niche of individuals, including myself, who are already at a healthy body composition. They're athletic, and maybe they just want to focus on building as much muscle as possible uh, with a structured resistance training program and controlled overeating, but also minimizing fat gains that come along with the overeating component. And so what I would like to focus a dissertation on is how can we manipulate the diet, both in terms of what we're eating, but also things like when we're eating, uh, getting into things like time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting, 
and looking at how it affects rates of muscle growth and uh, changes in body composition over a, a typical eight to 12 week bulking period that many athletes go through. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, zooming into this, the the question about fat loss, um, the, you know, this is sort of obviously a public health issue. And then, you know, it's also seems like it's an individual health issue. You know, pretty much most people you come across, you know, are, are concerned about fat gain. So how do you explain, you know, from both like a public health issue and an individual health issue, how we got here? Oh man. Well, I mean, I think how we got here is, is a, a loaded question. And I think that that's actually one of the biggest issues with the current, uh, I want to say fat loss industry as a whole, but also many practitioners in this area is that they like to, uh, hyper-focus in on one mechanism, one cause, and try and use that to answer, to solve the problem for everybody. And it's just not appropriate. Um, at a broad level, I mean, if we take a step back and we look at what changed in, in humans just over the last 70 years, since the 1950s, where obesity really started to pick up, uh, the big changes were things like incorporating more uh, fats and oils into the diet, particularly added fats and oils. There was an increase in sugar consumption, although that's now ever since the year 2000, it's starting to decline, even though obesity continues to rise. Um, but the one big thing that stands out that continues to rise today is calories. Humans uh, in the U.S. anyway are eating about 400 more calories per day than they were 70 years ago. And this almost perfectly explains the rise in obesity. But the issue is that you can't just tell people to eat less calories uh, because we know that that doesn't work. It might work in the short term when people try to force themselves to eat less. I mean, in fact, we know it works. You take any group of participants and lock them in a metabolic ward and you feed them less calories, they lose weight. And that's just a, a law. That's a law. Um, but in real life, it doesn't work that way. And people tend to return to old eating habits because they never established the habits necessary to maintain the weight loss. And so then you run into people that try and take it a step further that say, okay, let's go beyond calories. Why are people eating more calories? Well, it's a bunch of processed junk food. So how about we have them eat a low carbohydrate diet because that eliminates a lot of junk. And that too works, at least in the short term. But then people return back to old eating habits. And so it's really just appreciating that you know, there's a lot of factors involved and everyone's different. We can kind of look at trends, but even if you look at trends among people, it's not going to cover everyone. And so you really have to treat fat loss on an individual basis. You have to figure out for that, like we can talk about at a population level, these are probably the primary causes of why as a population we've gained weight. But when you're dealing with the individual, you can't use that population data. You have to talk to that individual and figure out what is it that led you to gain weight? Did you have some traumatic event? Are you chronically stressed? Are you underslept? What does your diet look like? Why are you eating the foods you do? Are you emotionally eating? Like, do you, are you eating erratically where you don't have a set schedule? All of these factors come into play and they might be different between different people. And so it's important to really treat each person as their own, you know, unique snowflake, so to speak, and say like, okay, 
now that we know what's going on with you personally, let's focus on those things and forget what's going on with other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's really well said. And, you know, I think, you know, given that, um, are your, are your assessments in what you do, um, do they involve a lot of history taking or they, is it, is it biomarkers that you look at? Are you a lab kind of lab focused functional medicine type? So I, I can read and interpret labs and I can use that to help people try and better their health. Um, I personally don't, uh, work with individuals one-on-one. Um, not anymore anyway, because I get much more joy out of, uh, creating content that many people can use and that is understandable by them. Uh, for the friends and family and select few individuals who I do work with on an individual basis, it does involve getting to understand them and getting to understand the reasons why they chose to engage in certain behaviors. Uh, the philosophy that I take for approaching uh, any client is a habit-based focus, which is where no matter what we do, uh, it needs to become a habit. It needs to become something that you don't actively use willpower to engage in. We need to get into the routine of having you do it so frequently that it becomes autopilot for you because that's the only way you're going to be able to sustain any of these changes over the long term. And you need to change the mindset through which you approach this entire problem. You can't see falling off the tracks, for example, as an absolute failure. You can't see it as an excuse to just give up. You need to understand that we're on a journey and you're going to uh, misstep every now and then and that it's absolutely perfectly fine to do that. It's not going to ruin anything. And the goal is to just realize you need to get back up, get back on the path and keep walking forward. Right. Yeah. You know, what I like about this your approach is, and I think we were talking about this before we got on um, the recording here, is, I mean, in this space, you see everything from, like, the doctor taking off his shirt and saying, look at me, do what I do, and if you do what I do, you'll look like me, which we know in reality, like you're saying, everybody's so unique, and what's going to work for somebody is is not particularly going to work for, um, you know, the next person. So, and I like how you, you take a lot of different factors into account when you're, you're speaking about this, it shows, you know, sort of like a holistic integrative approach. Um, that being said, I do, I do see you talk a lot about protein. Um, and, you know, is, is that something that you found is like a, a foundation in your philosophy is um, understanding the role of protein and, and fat loss? 100%. I think that whenever you are dealing with someone who is interested in losing fat, the absolute first thing you should do with their diet is ask how much protein are you eating and where is it coming from? And the reason for that is simply because uh, when you look at the literature around body weight regulation and how macronutrients affect it, protein is consistently the one macronutrient where if you eat higher protein diets, it causes increases in energy expenditure, reductions in appetite, and fat loss. You know, we have all this literature showing that ultimately it really doesn't matter how many carbs or fats people eat. As long as calories and protein are equated, they will lose similar amounts of fat. But we have a tremendous body of literature that shows that higher protein diets up to a point 
cause more fat loss and greater retentions of lean muscle mass than lower protein diets, especially when combined with structured exercise programs. Um, and so really the two fundamental, I would say, lifestyle habits that I try to address first with individuals is when it comes to their diet, there are things like, you know, whole foods, you know, you want to eat a good amount of plants, that type of stuff. But even, but a lot of that can be difficult for people to do because they just don't have the, they might not like the taste. They don't have the habits instilled to where like they can cook meals they find enjoyable with whole foods. Maybe they need to incorporate some processed foods into their diet, at least in the beginning, right? As a stepping stone. So unanimously, it's just much easier to focus first on getting this macronutrient where it needs to be. How can we get protein in your diet? If you're an omnivore, that's pretty easy. If you're a vegan, it's about helping them understand that there is definitely an advantage to incorporating some uh, plant-based protein powders into their diet. And in the fat loss blueprint program that I created alongside my wife and my business partner, Ari Witten, uh, we've actually had a tremendous influx of vegans come into the program because their weight loss is stalled. And unanimously, it's found that they're eating roughly half of the protein that we want them to. And as soon as they take in those plant-based protein powders, they start saying, I can't eat anything else today. I'm so full. And the fat loss just starts happening naturally again. Um, so yeah, protein is, is the first nutrient I address with people because it's the only nutrient that can support your lean muscle tissue. And it's the only nutrient that's consistently associated with greater fat loss. And I wonder if you could go into the, the more of the granular details of that. Um, you talked about satiety and protein. Um, is there any um, hormonal changes that you see with like ghrelin or the... Uh... Yeah, so protein is really interesting because when it comes to satiety, uh, the entire, or I shouldn't say the entire, but the primary reason that protein promotes satiety is because the essential amino acids, particularly leucine, what they do is they cross the blood-brain barrier and they enter into the brain and increase uh, anabolic signaling through the mammalian target of rapamycin pathway, the mTOR pathway. They increase that signaling within the hypothalamus of the brain, which is your primary like energy sensing. This is what's going to affect what goes on in the body like center of the brain. And by stimulating that, it tells the body you're well-fed, and so it reduces appetite. On the flip side of that, things like extended fasting increase AMPK signaling within the brain, which causes ravenous appetites. Like when you uh, take people and you starve them, for example, that's what increases to cause them to be hyperphagic and just want to eat all the food they come across. Um, so protein has the exact opposite effect on that. Uh, so that's one way that it reduces appetite. Another way is through ghrelin. And uh, ghrelin's an interesting one because ghrelin's commonly thought of as the hunger hormone. And it increases, you know, the idea of being hungry. And indeed, that is what it does when it comes about through uh, a fasted state. But when you consume dietary protein, what happens is that both ghrelin and insulin are stimulated at the same time. And there's a reason for this. Insulin helps shuttle the amino acids from the protein into your muscle tissue to, to, to uh, perpetuate muscle protein synthesis and reduce muscle protein breakdown. And 
if you have insulin doing that to give you to facilitate those anabolic effects, it's also shuttling everything outside your bloodstream. And that includes glucose. And so that means you run a risk of becoming hypoglycemic and that's not healthy or advantageous for survival. So your body is designed so that protein also stimulates the release of ghrelin. What ghrelin does is it hits the liver and it tells the liver, Hey, we need to pump out more glucose. And in essence, this is believed to help counteract the effect of insulin so that your blood glucose levels stay uh, steady. The other thing ghrelin does is it enters into the brain and it stimulates orexin neurons. And orexin is the primary neuropeptide involved in wakefulness and the desire to move and be active. And so, uh, and amino acids do this as well. Amino acids directly bind to the orexin receptors and stimulate them. And so through both ghrelin and orexin, you have an increase in or through ghrelin and amino acids, you have an increase in orexin signaling. And this orexin signaling basically tells your body, hey, it's time to move around and be active. And in rats, if you just, uh, if you infuse amino acids into rats, they spontaneously move more. And it's through orexin that they do that because if you block orexin signaling, that infusion doesn't cause them to be active anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so this orexin peptide just, uh, is one of the reasons why protein increases energy expenditure because orexin goes around and it says, okay, let's increase lipolysis. Let's activate our brown fat tissue. Let's have the person just have an urge to move more, even if it's just fidgeting. Um, and so through all these ways, protein directly suppresses appetite and increases energy expenditure without any effort on your part. And that's one of the fundamental reasons why it's so important to fat loss is because it takes the work out of your hands. You no longer need to force yourself to go work out. You eat protein and you're just throughout the day, you're going to have more energy and desire to work out. It's going to increase your motivation to do that through the way it affects neuropeptides. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. You know, orexin um, signaling comes also out of the research of narcolepsy. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, there's a problem with signaling and narcolepsy. and That's exactly uh, right. Narcolepsy is an autoimmune disease in which the immune system attacks and destroys orexin-producing neurons. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, with that destruction of orexin, you'll find that people with narcolepsy tend to be uh, more overweight or obese than the general population. And, 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 also try to, and they also try to eat to, to gain wakefulness a lot of times. Yep. Um, or hyperphagic. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I gleaned from reading some of your work that I think you and I both um, share a belief in is the importance of resistance training as a foundational lifestyle move in this, in this space of fat loss. And, and uh, I wonder if you could share more about that. Oh Yeah. Uh, resistance training is absolutely amazing because it's probably the most well-researched example of a hormetic stress on the body. Now, uh, for the people listening who don't know what a hormetic stress is, it's, it's, it's hormesis and hormesis is, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, so to speak. It's this idea that there is a stimulus for your body. If you don't reach that stimulus, nothing happens. But if you go over that stimulus, you start to hurt your body. And so if we put that in the context of exercise, if you know you do one set of bicep curls, it might not cause your bicep to grow. If 
you do three to four sets, then yeah, your biceps going to have a stimulus to grow bigger and get stronger. You're going to be in that hormetic zone. If you do 10, uh, 10 sets of bicep curls, you'll be over that zone. Your body's going to have a hard time recovering. You might suffer some uh, symptoms of overtraining, etc. And so it's the best defined example of a hormetic stress where resistance training tells your body, hey, we need bigger muscles. We need stronger muscles. We need a more robust cardiovascular system. We need more, uh, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on the word, but basically we need to, to increase the amount of, um, wow, why can't I remember? The capillaries. We need more capillary innervation of your muscle tissue to increase blood and, and uh, oxygen supply to those tissues to help clear wastes and supply the nutrients they need to function every day. Um, resistance training is, is by far, uh, the most effective way to increase your lean body tissue. And that's incredibly important, not just for everyone's self-esteem, so to speak, because I think when most people talk about wanting to lose fat, they don't want to, uh, look like someone who might suffer with anorexia, right? They don't want to be a, a skeleton thin, so to speak but they want to have a nice, more muscular frame where the muscle shows beneath their fat tissue. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can get that is by building up that muscular base. And the only way you can do that is through resistance training. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I see, you know, people who um, maybe are at the, at the further end of the spectrum of the um, fat gain issue where they're starting to get pre-diabetic and they're scared. And yeah. I, I think one of the most important conversations in that setting is do you resistance train? <laughs> Cause yeah. they can pull a lot of people out of that, those early stages of type two diabetes. Yeah. Well, I think what most people don't realize is that in an average adult, okay. So this isn't even someone who's regularly resistance training. This is just your average adult. Uh, it's skeletal muscle mass accounts for 80% of glucose uptake from the body. So if now you picture someone with lower than average skeletal muscle mass, you could understand why they might develop type two diabetes because there is 80, that 80%, you know, glucose uptake pool is not as big. And on the flip side, if you're someone who regularly engages in resistance training, you carry around a large amount of muscle tissue, you're going to have a much higher threshold before you develop diabetes, because you're going to have that very energetically costly metabolic sink that doesn't just exist when you're, when you're asleep, but it exists with every movement that you take. So if you picture yourself, let's say you weigh 150 pounds, you know, as you sleep, as you walk around, you're burning a certain amount of calories. If you add 20 pounds of muscle to your frame, then it's not only as you sleep, but every time you take a step, every time you lift your arm, every time you do any form of movement, it's going to require more calories to do that because you have a lot more mass and muscle mass that needs to be moved around. And that means that you get to eat more food while still maintaining a leaner physique. And that's very advantageous to people because, I mean, people get overweight or obese because they overeat. They might not know why they're overeating, but the fact remains, if you're not overeating, you're not going to gain weight. So that means in order to get overweight or obese, you have to be overeating as a rule. Mm -hmm. And so if you have more muscle tissue that can soak up those calories, 
then you could eat however much you're eating now, but you wouldn't be gaining weight because you need those calories now to support that muscle tissue. Yeah. 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 And especially important as people get like 40 and over, you know, when, yes. when hormone levels change and the muscle mass is harder to maintain. Yes. Yes. Um, and when sarcopenia becomes a much greater issue, which is the age related loss of muscle mass. Um, I think, uh, there's one, uh, prevalent study out there that actually suggests that now one in 10 people aged 20 to 30 years old has sarcopenia. Um, so it is starting to affect younger generations and, uh, it's fundamentally because people are not resistance training. I would say that that's even more important than eating sufficient protein because resistance training tells your body to lay down more muscle. If you're not telling your body to lay down more muscle, it doesn't matter how much protein you're eating. You're not going to get the same increases in lean mass that you would otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the era of COVID, I mean, it, it's true that even doing body weight and band exercises at home, if that's all you can muster together, could could help, right? Yeah. Anything, even uh, body weight exercises. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that when they think of resistance training, they think of someone like getting under a barbell and squatting. They think of very aggressive forms of exercise. And that's not the case at all. It's called resistance training. You just need to apply some resistance and that could be done with your body weight in your own home. That could be done on machines that are much safer than using free weights at the gym. Uh, it's, it's very reasonable for, for almost anyone to work out. Um, it's yeah. just about figuring out, you know, what their limitations are and working within them. Yeah. Yeah. I can speak from personal experience, the COVID 10 or whatever got me pretty good. And, uh, I just went and did some body weight lunges and I, I was thinking this feels just like I have a pair of dumbbells in my hand. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Well, uh, the other things that you know I'd like to go into just because they they are sort of topics in this in this arena is um, effect on circadian rhythm, uh, adiponectin, maybe some of those words that are out there that people are hearing and they quite don't they don't quite know what they mean and how they would apply to fat loss. Okay, well let's start with circadian rhythm because. I think this one is, is critically important for people to understand. Uh, every, every cell in your body has a clock within it. And if you were to lock yourself in a dark room without exposure to any light, your body would run on a cyclical basis where uh, every, every cell would commit actions. It would do something. It would stop. And then it would pick it up again. And it would run just like on a clock. Like every time the clock struck one, that cell would do something. And this is called your circadian rhythm. And we, ex but the thing is, is we don't exist in a box with complete darkness. We have to interact with a world where the environmental challenges that we're facing change w in the course of a day, right? You know, it's light out. That's super advantageous for going and finding food, hunting, uh, building shelter, etc. And then it becomes dark. And that's when you need to hide in shelter, you're going to have trouble finding food, you might become the prey rather than the predator. While uh, nocturnal things like, for example, lions in the savanna hunt you. 
And so we need to somehow sync up all of our internal actions with these environmental changes so that our survival is, is uh, we have a higher rate of survival. And the way we do that is through our brain, through something called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this is a part of your brain that controls the master clock for all the circadian rhythms throughout your body. It gets activated when light from the sun, in particular blue light, enters through your eye. And that stimulates your retina and it sends signals to the suprachiasmatic nucleus that basically say it is daytime. We're going to do everything we need to in daytime, higher energy expenditure, higher desire to be active, to move around, you know, greater hunger levels so that we're stimulated to go and want to find food, things of that nature. Uh, and then when the sun sets, other things occur. We no longer have that stimulus that says it's daytime. So certain things like melatonin secretion happen, prepares our body for sleep so that we can rest through the night and wake up recharged and refreshed to repeat the next day. Uh, circadian dysregulation, where your circadian rhythm gets out of sync with the environment, is one of the most pervasive health consequences or causes of health consequences in the modern world. Because fundamentally, two things have happened. We have shifted first, we have shifted from a people of the sun to a people of the cubicle. People are not getting adequate bright sun exposure every day. And this is meaning this tells our body, hey, it's, it's not daytime. People are literally sitting in cubicles exposed to the wrong types of light every day. So they're not getting a robust signal that it's daytime, and that's affecting their circadian rhythms. And then to compound that issue, they're exposing themselves to bright light at night, artificial lighting they would never be exposed to at all. So that, for example, when your melatonin is supposed to be secreted, which, by the way, is the most potent antioxidant in your body, even more than glutathione, even more than vitamin C, vitamin E, none of them compare to melatonin, um, your body's not secreting it. And that means you're going to have higher levels of oxidative stress throughout your body. There's a hypothesis that one of the reasons we become sleepy is through a buildup of oxidative stress within the brain, and that sleep is meant to bathe our brain in melatonin and cerebrospinal fluid that quell that oxidative stress and drain uh, metabolic waste products out of the brain. And that's not happening if you're sleeping with the lights on and you're exposing yourself to bright light before you go to bed. You're not having an adequate duration of exposure to melatonin. So... You're not getting a good nighttime stimulus. You're not getting a good daytime stimulus. You're basically uh, completely screwing up the biological clocks within your body. You're eating at night, which was never supposed to happen, except under very rare circumstances of severe energy deficits. Mm -hmm. uh, most people are overfed plus eating at night. Not a good combination. Mm -hmm. And so what this does, the circadian disruption, is you're more fatigued throughout the day. You're going to be at a higher risk of muscle loss when you diet. You're going to predispose yourself to weight gain. Your appetite's going to increase. You're going to put yourself at a higher risk of almost every chronic disease out there, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, night shift work, where we have people work overnight is the only occupation that is intrinsically a carcinogen. You have occupations with like asbestos workers. That's a carcinogenic occupation because they're exposed to a toxicant. Night shift work, you're not exposed to any toxicant. It's the night shift work itself is a known carcinogen because working at night 
disrupts your circadian rhythm so much that the risk of cancer is through the roof. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is, you know, such a foundation and a pillar. I imagine when you say that you're constructing a lifestyle, you know, versus a diet, like anybody can put together a diet for like 28 days and someone can lean out, maybe look good for the wedding or what have you. Um, but you know, what you're talking about is like a lifestyle yes. focus, something that you can carry on for life, which you know, I really, really appreciate about what you're doing. Um, I want to leave some time to hear more about the uh, fat loss blueprint and, and hear more about that and anything else you're up to, if you could kind of give us some details on that. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely can. Um, Okay, so the Fat Loss Blueprint is is a program that I created with my wife, Brianna Thoreau, and my business partner, Ari Witten. And it, we wanted to create this program simply because uh, most fat loss programs out there, when you uh, look at them, it's basically, here's what you need to eat. I'm going to give you a diet template. You just follow it. Here's an exercise routine. You follow it. Where they just tell you what to do. And then if you fail, it's because they make up an excuse about you not doing what they told you to. And it focuses exclusively on diet and exercise and very, very little, if at all, on lifestyle components. So in this program, we said, okay, you know, most people know they need to eat better. So we're going to take a lesson plan. And we're going to talk about the, the fat loss fundamentals of diet. And we're going to address those for people so they know how to get started. How much protein should they be eating? Why is it important to eat that much protein? Why is it important to focus on eating whole foods? That type of stuff. Why is it important to pick the diet that you can stick to? And we talk about all the research behind it. But then we go into and focus the majority of it. This thing's 18 lesson plans and 16 of those lesson plans focus on lifestyle. We talk about circadian rhythms and sleep. What's the science behind them? How does it affect your health and fat loss? And how can you optimize them? We give people actionable steps. Like we, we don't tell them this is what you do. We say, this is what you should do. This is why it's important. Let us walk you through it and let us give you 20 different tips to improve your circadian rhythm that you can use depending on where you're at currently because some people are going to need different changes than other people. We talk about intermittent fasting and calorie cycling, meal frequency, macro timing, the importance of energy flux and being active throughout the day. We talk about hormesis, heat stress, cold stress, phytochemical stress from plants, and how all of these can impact uh, the detoxifications that occur during weight loss. Because one of the things no one ever talks about is when you lose fat, you're having toxicants stored in your fat tissue released into your bloodstream. And that can cause you to feel really crappy. And that can deter you from continuing to diet. So what can we do to help your body uh, dispose of those toxicants and get them out of your body so that you don't feel like crap. You know, that's another part of it. Uh, stress management, because most people in today are chronically stressed because of work, because of relationships, whatever. You know, how does that affect your body composition? Let us explain it to you and let us give you some realistic, practical steps to help lower your stress load and change your mindset around stress. What about your dieting mindset? We talked about this at the beginning, you know, if you fall off the tracks, how can you get back on? How can you change your mindset to overcome your self-limiting beliefs? Because most people's problems are in their head. 
you know, it's not a lack of knowledge, it's a lack of application. And if you just change your perspective on a few key issues, you can completely, you know, pave the way for your success down the road. Uh, we have a whole chapter that's, or a whole lesson that's dedicated to women specifically to talk about, you know, how does menopause affect things? How can we take advantage of your hormonal cycles every month or your lack of to amplify fat loss? Uh, what supplements work? I mean, I previously worked for Examine, which is a supplement encyclopedia. So I dig through every fat loss supplement out there. I tell you which ones work, how much you should take, what the context is that you should take it in, and which supplements do people say work for fat loss but really don't so that you don't waste your money. And then, you know, how do we throw all this together? How, how do you know where to start? What should you start with? We have a habit spectrum where people can actually rate themselves on a spectrum of habits for each of these lesson plans. And they can say, okay, I'm, I'm right here. I'm, you know, a, a level three habit. So next I need to get to level four. What can I do to get to level four? Well, here, let us tell you. Um, we, we lay it out. 18 lessons of purely evidence-based information that's given to people in a very understandable and appealing nature. And, you know, we want them to lose fat. We don't want them to, we don't want them to just do what we say. We want them to understand why we want them to walk away with this, with the knowledge where they could then help their friend. I mean, they would be able to sit there and actually tell their friend what they're doing, why they're doing it and how it's helping them. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. You guys didn't miss much there with that plan. <laughs> with no, our goal was for it to be the most comprehensive one on the market. And I'm happy to say that it truly is. And anyone that's interested can go to my website, alexleaf.com forward slash fat loss blueprint. If they're interested in checking it out. Excellent. Yeah. And we'll, uh, we'll put the links in the show notes here. Of course. I mean, I, I, uh, I search around, you know, for, programs to refer my patients to that are needing um, more guidance. And um, I'm very excited to tell people about this because, you know, there's always, there's all these topics that don't, that seem to be left out of most of these programs. And it's really seems like you guys have covered the majority or if not all the, the actionable steps that people can take. So um, thank you. Um, anything else you'd like to share um, or any kind of take-home messages you want to give us before we finish our time together? Well, since we wanted this conversation to be about fat loss, um, I guess that the final message I would, I'll give to people since I'm going to assume those listening are interested in fat loss is don't, don't rush it. Uh, I mean, yeah, there are situations where like you want to lose 10 pounds or 20 pounds for your sister's wedding or something, right? But generally speaking, uh, it's a journey and it's not something that you can just quick fix. It's not like, hey, you know, drink cabbage soup every day and your obesity will be gone in a matter of months. Well, yeah, it very well might be, but what about after that? Like the whole the whole fat loss journey is called a journey for a reason. And you just got to focus on taking one step step after another so that you develop the habits necessary to not only lose weight, but also keep that weight off. Anything that you do to lose weight, you need to ensure that you can do it for the rest of your life, because that's going to be how you keep the weight off. And more importantly, you need to make sure that you can enjoy it. Because if you're doing something to lose weight that you don't enjoy, 
why are you even doing it to begin with? Because it's not something that you're going to stick with. And if it is, you're going to hate your life because of it. So let's, you know, there's many roads to Rome. So let's find a way that works for you personally. Let's find a diet that works for you. Let's find an exercise routine that works for you. Let's find a conglomerate of lifestyle habits that work for you personally and your personal needs so that you can maximize your fat loss, optimize your body composition, and enjoy the process on the way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm really excited to continue to follow your career and um, we'll put all the kind of links to your social media um, network out there. And uh, thanks again. We really appreciate you being here, Alex. Yeah, thank you for having me, Adam. It was great talking with you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from them. Forward the, the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.